Welcome to the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. Uh, The purpose of this podcast is to create visibility for young and soon-to-be prolific academic emergency physicians by highlighting their research and their vision for their field. Uh, We hope to introduce these ideas to you, the listener, and to expand and maybe even redirect your thinking toward the forefront of both the science and the philosophy of emergency medicine. Uh, We're very happy to be joined by one of the young scholars uh, in the foundation today, Dr. Chris Coyne. Uh, Dr. Coyne is at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, He uh, did his medical school at USC Keck School of Medicine and residency at LAC USC Medical Center. Uh, Afterwards, he completed a fellowship in clinical research and has participated in multiple research projects, presentations, and various regional and national conferences. Uh, His research interests include critical care, resuscitation, EMS, and as something near and dear to my heart, he is also a bass guitar player. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, what, what we're going to be discussing with Chris today is a few of his uh, papers and just his general um, approach to the field of uh, not just emergency medicine, but es- especially oncology in emergency medicine. Uh, Chris is the author of some papers uh, re- uh, related to venous thromboembolism in cancer patients, as well as management of febrile neutropenia. And just before we get going, I wanted to make sure that we read uh, exactly the three paradigms that Chris wants everyone to be aware of. So number one, febrile neutropenic patients can be discharged from the ED safely using the CISNE score, that's C-I-S-N-E. Number two, cancer pain is difficult to treat, but it can be managed appropriately if we use morphine equivalent dosing and cancer pain protocols are in place. And the third one is a wave of cancer immunotherapies is coming, and emergency physicians had better be ready to handle the subtle and potentially life-threatening complications. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you, uh, if I could, just how you got interested in this field to begin with and where you kind of see uh, uh, the current state of uh, oncologic management in the emergency department. Sure. So, I kind of, uh, well, there's several reasons why I ended up in the uh, in the oncologic emergency medicine realm, uh, first and foremost was just uh, the fact that I wasn't really exposed to it much in in residency. Um, LAC USC um, is a pretty big county hospital, uh, but the oncology stuff is actually separated from the county hospital and usually ends up over at the university hospital. So although um, those patients did infrequently visit our our ED. Um, I didn't really see much of it, so I just only really knew about it in terms of what I read in books uh, and what was taught to me in lectures. And then when I moved down to UC San Diego, um, well, UC San Diego is actually associated with uh, with a NIH cancer center. Uh, one of the two UCSD ERs specifically treats uh, almost exclusively cancer and cardiology patients. So just being exposed to those, I, I just realized the gap in my knowledge which then spurred um, a significant interest. And the other one that I definitely have to mention, which obviously will be a huge uh, contributor, is that my wife is an oncologist. <laughs> that helps. So she actually is a breast oncologist. <laughs> you know, it's, it actually does help <laughs> quite a bit, um, not only in terms of questions that I might have, but also in terms of um, you know, helping me generate research questions and areas that we can improve. 
Um, so my wife um, is actually a breast oncologist. Um, so not necessarily um, specifically interested in oncologic emergencies, uh, but definitely encounters them from time to time and, and cues me into some areas that are, that are you know, burgeoning in the field of oncology. Um, so those th- two things combined definitely moved me towards oncology. Um, so in the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned some of the interests that I have, and those were those interests that I had coming into my research fellowship. Um, and then by the end of my research fellowship, I definitely had changed gears and, and had developed a niche within uh, oncologic emergency medicine. All right, Chris, I think that one of the things that I find very difficult is how the emergency physician is to respond to edicts from national societies and recommendations that don't appear to be based on an actual practice in the emergency department. And of course, one of your paradigms is a great example of that. We were taught it's really easy when you see a neutropenic patient who has a fever. You can put your brain in neutral and coast while you write out the admission orders for this patient. And yet, uh, once again, that seems not to be the most practical way to handle this problem. Can you give us some data on that? Absolutely. So, so speaking towards the literature within oncology, um, there have been some protocols in place, uh, even dating back to the 1980s, that have been designed to identify low-risk patients with febrile neutropenia that would be that would be ideal for discharge, primarily without any sort of hospitalization. Now, the caveat to those scores is that they were designed specifically for uh, outpatient patient uh, febrile neutropenia patients that were in let's say, oncology clinics or internal medicine clinics, also patients that were already admitted to the hospital and then happened to develop a fever and were known to be neutropenic. That's what these things were designed for. None of them were actually designed specifically for the emergency department. And as we know, patients coming into the ER are significantly different than those patients uh, in those other clinical settings. So one of those scores, the first one is called the Talcott score. uh, And that basically was designed using uh, multivariate analysis, looking at independent things, uh, factors, including different uh, signs and symptoms, as well as lab values that would place somebody at a higher risk of bacteremia or decompensation downstream. Um, The second score that came out was the mask score, and several oncologists still use the mass score to identify low-risk patients with febrile neutropenia, uh, and that one was found to have a higher sensitivity and specificity as opposed to the Talcott score. Um, and the third score that most recently was released is the CISNY score, uh, and that's the one that we have researched and compared to the mass score at UCSD, and we believe, uh, based on the research here, is the most appropriate score to use in the emergency department. So the CISNY score specifically was designed for solid cancer patients, uh, so not liquid cancer like leukemia um, or multiple myeloma, 
And the score combines several different things, including uh, certain laboratory values like the absolute monocyte count. Uh, it includes uh, a measurement of stress-induced hyperglycemia. And then it also includes things like uh, like a history of COPD, history of cardiac disease, uh, and functional status. And what we did here at UCSD was we did a retrospective cohort study, basically looking at every single patient with febrile neutropenia who presented to the ER from 2012 to 2015 and followed them uh, during their initial admission or discharge. Now, as was mentioned, uh, it historically has been just an easy dispo for uh, emergency physicians to just admit all these patients that come in with febrile neutropenia. Um, so as you can imagine, most of these patients were admitted in our healthcare system. Uh, however, we did identify uh, patients that scored as low risk or zero risk according to the CISNI score. And about uh, uh, literally only one patient had a negative outcome, and that was just a positive blood culture. Uh, and this is in a patient that we, uh, we were expecting to have uh, something because they had a history of uh, recurrent bloodstream infections and uh, recurrent ESBL uh, in the urine. So it wasn't that surprising. And that person probably in a daily like ER shift, if you actually pick that patient up, you probably wouldn't end up discharging them at all. Um, so that's compared to the mass score, which was much less uh, sensitive and specific uh, in the identification of a low-risk group that could go home. So one might ask the question, why, why do we care about discharging these patients? Why don't we just admit them? Why change our practice um, since it is an easy disposition? And I would argue that uh, several of these patients have the, have the potential for harm by being admitted in that, you know, they can develop viral infections just like anyone else. And the patients that generally are okay to go home are those patients that have very little symptoms but do have a fever and they do have neutropenia. I agree with Peter that the ED perspective for febrile neutropenia and just cancer in general is a very quick and easy disposition. It's, uh, well, you're, we'll call the oncologist and we'll just do whatever they say. But this actually kind of switches a lot of you know what we've been taught as far as even just the notion that an admission causes harm. Uh, the admission a lot of times can defer whatever responsibility we have to, well, go see your specialist because I don't know what's going on. And this is kind of challenging to me personally of like, I need to know more about uh, who's actually going to be at risk by just bringing them into the hospital and potentially getting a nosocomial infection. That's definitely true. And in addition to that, uh, we didn't even talk about the potential for deconditioning by being in the hospital, sitting in that bed most of the day. Um, so their functional status could definitely decline by being admitted to the hospital. You use neutropenia as a cutoff of an absolute neutrophil count less than 500. And then there was also the definition of less than a thousand with a thought that it will go down, which it, that's, that's a little bit of a gray area that I couldn't really wrap my head around. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, that, that comes directly from the NCCN guidelines um, and previous studies on febrile neutropenia. So actually for the, for the study that we conducted at UCSD, we, we specifically used less than 1,000. 
uh, because of that gray area. We wanted to capture everyone. And we did find that there were patients in that 500 to 1,000 range that did have negative outcomes and did screen positive on the CISNI score. So, so I would suggest being a little bit more conservative in the ER since these patients, you know, obviously come in undifferentiated uh, and using that cutoff of 1,000. Technically, less than 1,000 is still considered neutropenia. Uh, they, one would say moderate neutropenia. Uh, and if you actually look at the definition, even less than 1,500 is considered mild neutropenia, but most oncologists would use a cutoff of 1,000. Um, and then finally, less than 500 would be, would be considered severe neutropenia. You know, th this is one of those decision rule, the clinical decision rules that uh, is probably going to be taught to medical students uh, at some point because it performed very well and it's just going to be part of the lexicon of what we think. But what I found really interesting in your comparison of cystine and mask is uh, there's not a lot of crossover in the symptoms that you're putting in there or the signs. Uh, there, with Wells and Perk, there's a lot of crossover. With Nexus and Canadian C-spine, there's a lot of crossover. And really, the only thing that seems to be the same between cystine and mask is whether or not the patient has COPD. Um, are they just different goals? Uh, are they trying to uh, accomplish different purposes? Or, you know, why, why are they such different clinical decision rules? That's a great question. Um, well, one of one of the things about the mass score that is significantly different from the CISNI score is actually a measurement of burden of symptoms, which I would suggest is actually one of the uh, one of the reasons why the CISNI outperforms the mass score because that is just such a subjective measurement. Um, no matter who you are, it's difficult to keep that sort of measurement of how severe someone's symptoms are the same amongst two different reviewers. Um, so I think one of the strengths, similarly, one of the strengths of the CISNI score that, um, <clears throat> is that most of those things are fairly objective, with the exception of the ECOG score. However, uh, so if you look at it, as I mentioned, the uh, stress-induced hyperglycemia, the absolute monocyte count, uh, the presence of a history of COPD uh, or cardiac disease, all of these things are things that can easily be checked. As far as the ECOG score, which is a score of uh, functional status, generally that is uh, documented. If you have an EMR, generally that's documented in a recent hospital visit by a, uh, an oncologist, a treating oncologist. Uh, if not, it's actually fairly easy to go through uh, what the ECOG score is and assign a score uh, depending on how the patient's been functioning. Uh, previous to their visit in the ER. Although, yes, they are somewhat different. Uh, I think one is highly reliant on subjective measures, the mass score, and that while uh, the CISNI score, uh, I think, outperforms because it's more of, of an objective score. And one, one of the things that I think is significant as far as the differences between the two is that absolute monocyte count. That is a count that actually cues the physician as to how quickly this person's going to recover from their neutropenia. Very low monocyte count is indicative of a more prolonged neutropenia. Um, so uh, I think inclusion of that definitely helps to eliminate some of the, uh, some of the higher risk patients in the CISNI group. 
I think that's really important. That's something I've never even considered of when is this patient going to bounce back. So I, I think that's incredibly helpful. And I agree with you that from an ED setting, uh, having a more objective clinical decision rule makes sense because we're generally not going to know these patients. We're not going to have an idea of their history other than what we can elicit from the chart. So I, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read off for people that are listening real quick of what these things are. So the first is the ECOG score. So this is the uh, factors that we take into account for the CISNI score. So the ECOG score is the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, and this is basically a patient who is asymptomatic all the way down to uh, bed-bound of how much time they're spending in bed and kind of what's happening with them uh, as far as their activities of daily living. Uh, it also factors in hyperglycemia, presence of COPD, cardiovascular disease, and mucositis, and then that monocyte count, which is something I'm definitely going to start looking for uh, to kind of have a gauge of when is this patient going to rebound. This is probably a very loaded question with a lot of, you know, interpretation, but why do you think the hematologic uh, malignancies were screened out for cystine? What, what is it about a hematologic malignancy that's either... Uh, puts a patient at higher risk or is more difficult to treat? Um, how do oncologists and how should us in the emergency department view a hematologic malignancy versus a solid tumor? So I think it just has to do with the goal of the chemotherapy and how it differs between those, those different types of cancers. So with a hematologic malignancy, the, the chemotherapy specifically is targeted towards the uh, the heme system. So by giving that medication, we're hoping that you're eliminating cancer cells within that system. And generally, those types of chemotherapies are going to be much more aggressive. They're going to cause more profound neutropenia. They're going to cause more prolonged neutropenia. That is the main factor uh, involved in why we they did not include hematologic malignancy. I think um, if you go through their original uh, paper, they talk about how those patients generally at baseline would be considered higher risk. Um, and I think that's, that is definitely echoed by our BMT colleagues here at UCSD. Now, just to note, during our study, we d actually did involve uh, and include all of the hematologic malignancy patients uh, in our study, even though CISNI... Uh, was specifically designed for solid cancer. And uh, again, that only that one person had a negative outcome, that, that positive blood culture. And that was a, a patient with uh, AML. So it was a hematologic malignancy. Um, of the other patients that we identified, none of them had a negative outcome as long as they had a CISNI score that was negative. And it was pretty significant, too. I mean, your, your positive predictive value for finding these low-risk patients was 98%, which is really good for what we're looking for in the emergency department. So when we're, when we're approaching these patients, uh, if I have a febrile neutropenic patient in the ED, um, how well accepted are these score, uh, is the CISNI score in the oncologic population of where, uh, you know, I could just assess the patient and kind of get their risk and then send them home or have a discussion with their oncologist? How well accepted is, uh, is this score amongst uh, oncologists? That's great. Uh, great question. So the NCCN guidelines for uh, febrile neutropenia were actually just revised and this will be the first time that the CISNI score was actually included. 
So it is definitely accepted by, uh, by oncologists and uh, hematologists. And it is, it is a newer score. So obviously, for those that aren't necessarily as up to date on current recommendations and guidelines, there might be a little bit of pushback. I would expect that because most people these days, especially oncologists, are uh, more, more familiar with the MASK score. However, if you, you could simply direct them towards their own current guidelines, which have now uh, been rewritten to include the CISNI score. It's always difficult when you have to direct the specialist back to their own guidelines, but uh, <laughs> it happens. Um, when, you, when you're approaching these patients, uh, what's your discussion with the oncologist? Do you still call uh, an oncologist for each of their patients that come in with febrile neutropenia? What's kind of the climate in San Diego as far as uh, seeing, these, treat, seeing and treating these patients in the ED? Are you going to be giving them a call at 2 in the morning and say, hey, your patient's here with low-risk febrile neutropenia? So we created a uh, protocol with our oncology group and our uh, infectious disease group, which basically involves application of the CISNI score for SOLIDOC and then putting the patient in to observational status uh, for a period of time. And that is uh, dependent, on, uh, dependent on the provider and the patient's oncologist. But if they come in overnight, as you mentioned, 2 a.m., generally what we'll do, we will apply the score. If they score uh, a zero on the on their Sisney uh, score, we'll place them in OBS. They'll receive their initial dose of oral antibiotics, uh, and then we will establish follow-up with the oncologist the following morning. Chris, the problems that we've had with these scores in other diseases is that the patients don't often present with the information that makes them a candidate for the use of the score. Many of these patients come in and say, I'm here because I have cough and chest pain, and it's only in the course of their workup that you discover that they are a cancer patient who's neutropenic. Is there any series of uh, concomitant findings that you would look for to make you want to admit these patients even though they score low on their cancer workup? In other words, are there, what are you using as your clinical judgment to decide, I don't care what the score is, I don't think it's safe to send this patient home? Sure. One of our decision points on our protocol does involve how severe their infection may be. Let's say a person comes in with very severe symptoms. It's most likely that they will actually score positive on the score, on the CISNI score. However, I mean, obviously, phys physician gestalt is still uh, number one. Um, I don't think the score would really be applied if the person had other significant symptoms. As you mentioned, chest pain, I mean, obviously, that's not typically seen in just a general febrile neutropenia without the presence of something more. Uh, maybe they have a history of cardiovascular disease and that needs to be worked up more fully. Or uh, if they have a, a pneumonia, uh, that's caused them to be admitted in the, uh, uh, it's basically negating whatever the score may be. And that is actually written into our protocol here at UCSD. If the person has, uh, has a more severe infection 
or more severe symptoms uh, in general, um, and the physician feels that this person needs to be admitted regardless, then they will be admitted. The most common situation where the score is used and applied uh, successfully with, with a discharge of a patient is when, in general, they come in with fairly minor symptoms, uh, typically uh, that appear viral in nature, maybe a cough, runny nose, maybe some myalgias, not usually significant focal symptoms that would indicate a bacterial infection. Because those are the patients that we obviously don't want to be discharging, those that clearly have a bacterial disease. The ones we're truly trying to pick up are those that likely have a viral disease that could safely be discharged and treated at home. You know, when I'm, I remember in medical school kind of learning about uh, some of the chemotherapy drugs, uh, some of these other uh, new immunotherapy drugs that were coming up, uh, even uh, 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 GMCSF and saying, oh, I'll never need to use that. I'm going to be an ER doctor. And that's clearly not the case in this day and age. Uh, you, you also make the comment that there's, uh, there's a lot of new drugs that are coming on the market, and the patients, just like all of the new blood thinners and all of the other uh, medications that are, uh, that are out there, uh, they're going to be coming into the ER, and we need to be familiar with them. What are some of the uh, new drugs on the horizon that we should be aware of, and what are the complications we should be looking for? Absolutely. So the main ones that are currently available uh, within, within the market are called checkpoint inhibitors. And these, these are uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, specifically CTLA-4 and also um, PD-1 inhibitors. So these will actually turn back on the immune system for immune surveillance of cancer. Several different types of tumors have different mechanisms for turning off these receptors uh, or ligands. And these new classes of immunotherapies will actually turn them back on and allow the immune system to fight the cancer. Um, however, unfortunately, there are several side effects. As you can imagine, if you're turning on the immune system, you will develop potentially some severe immune-related toxicities. Unfortunately, they do seem to affect essentially every system in the, in the body. Um, some affect systems more than others. Uh, one, of the, one of the earlier drugs called ipilimumab uh, is very commonly producing colitis, uh, which can sometimes uh, appear similar to just a typical gastroenteritis with uh, episodes of diarrhea, but can fairly rapidly progress into a more severe inflammation of the bowel and lead towards uh, bowel perforation. The unfortunate thing about these complications is that they tr they really do present as minor types of symptoms. One of the other complications is something like uh, hypophysitis or thyroiditis, where a patient will generally present just with severe fatigue, maybe some uh, a little bit of lethargy, which could be consistent with just being on chemotherapy um, or having cancer. Um, so it could uh, fairly easily be written off if you're not thinking about it and not looking for those types of complications. It is incredibly important for us to know that these things exist. Um, at UCSD, one of the things that we've in, uh, implemented is actually an EPIC-based, uh, EPIC's the EMR that we use here, uh, it's an EPIC-based pop-up so that when a patient comes in and they are known to be on one of these immune checkpoint inhibitors, 
there actually is a, uh, a pop-up that will come up for any provi provider who opens their chart, which will say, hey, this person's on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, and these are the potential toxicities that you should look out for as a link towards some more um, to, towards more education. Uh, it has been incredibly successful in terms of picking up these sorts of complications here at UCSD. So the checkpoint inhibitors, and then the other one you mentioned was a, was it a, was it a PD-2 inhibitor? What was that one? Checkpoint inhibitors, uh, those actually, um, there are different types of checkpoint inhibitors. So there's a PD-1, and then there's the CTLA-4. Those are the most common. There are a whole host of different types of checkpoint inhibitors, but those are the two most common types. And those, uh, those different types of checkpoint inhibitors will be associated with different complications, but they all fall under that sort of immune-related uh, uh, complication. And so all of these are going to have the AB suffix, right? Like uh, ipilimumab or uh, 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 nivolumab, some kind of, a, some kind of an MAB yep. suffix? Yes. Indeed. So in these patients, um, we should be looking for, you know, some of the, we're probably going to be doing a general laboratory screen looking for whatever could go wrong for cancer patients. But would you advocate also making sure we check thyroid and check any other labs on these patients as a general screen for patients that are on immunologics? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's truly dependent on, on what symptoms the person's having and what medication they're on to some extent. Now, you mentioned uh, thyroiditis or hypophysitis. Um, it's not an easy thing to diagnose. Definitely sending a TSH on somebody who comes in with uh, increasing fatigue is a simple test that you can do in the ER. You'll get a result um, that could potentially lead to um, a diagnosis of something that could truly be life-threatening if it progresses. Um, these patients do require high doses of steroids um, uh, initiated almost immediately, uh, especially if they're in a higher grade of toxicity. So, yeah, a simple test like a TSH is definitely indicated in patients that have symptoms along the lines of fatigue, things that you would expect for typical hypo, um, and also the hypophysitis. Um, that can actually present uh, very similarly. And the only way to truly diagnose it, if you do have a suspicion, is to do an MRI of the brain. So I think what I would, what I would advocate is that if the person comes in and they are on the appropriate therapy that would cause something like hypophysitis, then doing some screening tests like a TSH uh, and a cortisol uh, if those things come back positive, uh, as in um, abnormal, then potentially going down the pathway of treating with steroids and consulting with the oncologist leading towards doing an MRI of the brain, which is truly the only way to diagnose hypophysitis in these patients. Chris, are there any uh, groups of tumors that are more likely to be on this therapy than others? Because patients have a bad habit of not remembering what drugs they're taking and come in and say, yeah, I'm a cancer patient and I take chemotherapy, but they can't remember that they're taking the immunosuppressant. Yes, there, is, there are groups of, of tumors that are currently more likely to receive immunotherapies. Number one would be melanoma. These immunotherapies have completely revolutionized the therapy, uh, the treatment of melanoma. In fact, 
some of these therapies are considered first line now um, and can completely eradicate metastatic melanoma uh, in certain cases. So, I mean, they, they do amazing things. Uh, unfortunately, they can cause some complications. So, yes, when you see a patient with melanoma and they don't know what medication they're on, I would uh, suspect that it could be an immune therapy. Uh, one other uh, one other type of tumor that is commonly treated now with immunotherapy is head and neck cancer. So several different types of head and neck cancer are treated with these medications. And then next would be uh, breast cancer. Specifically, uh, triple negative breast cancer uh, is commonly now treated with, uh, with these immunotherapies. So uh, every day, though, these uh, therapies are actually being expanded to be used in, in other types of cancers. So that, and that's, uh, that's why I think we really need to keep this on the radar, because um, as the indications for these therapies uh, expand, we are definitely going to see these patients in the ER. I think this kind of stuff is just kind of mind-blowing to me. I mean, even even hypophysitis, uh, thinking the first couple times you said apophysitis, like a bone, <laughs> but thinking of like actual inflammation of the pituitary gland uh, is never something I would have considered in these patients. So having these in mind when you've got a patient that comes in and they've got signs of end-organ endocrine dysfunction, you think all the way back to the pituitary that that might be the source. That's pretty incredible. I wanted to switch gears if I could and talk about the, th uh, the third paradigm that you wanted to try to shift, and that's that cancer pain can be managed appropri appropriately in an ED setting. I think that in the age of opioid epidemic that we currently have, everyone is very fearful of opioids, certainly in non-cancer patients. Uh, and I think that at least in cancer patients, the, the notion of treating pain and using opioids does not carry the same stigma, perhaps, uh, but it still carries, I think, a lot of the same fear of overdoses. Uh, what are your recommendations for how we should approach cancer pain in the ED? Absolutely. So um, I think that's the key. As you mentioned, the current opioid crisis, um, and although classically we don't consider these patients, uh, you know, really, uh, it's not that they're not at risk for an opiate addiction. It's just that, I mean, we know that their pain is truly severe in most cases and that they require high doses of pain medication, regardless of the potential for, for an addiction. Um, so usually, um, I think all physicians, but including emergency physicians, are are uh, more liberal with medications uh, for these patients. However, if you look at the objective data, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case as far as how we actually treat these patients. So, so oncologists and internists have been looking at this for quite some time because this has obviously been a huge issue. This is one of the main issues with patients with cancer, uh, that their pain is, is severe and frequently not appropriately controlled. Um, so there was actually a very large campaign uh, amongst internists and oncologists to, to better treat these patients. And this was a national campaign a few years ago that had lectures and a lot of educational material. And unfortunately, the percentage of patients that were appropriately treated that said their pain was controlled went up uh, a, f a slight fraction, like a few percentage points, which is uh, pretty disheartening when pain goes out. And then you combine that with the emergency department, where we know from previous studies that pain management is generally an issue uh, that we're not the greatest at dealing with. 
you know, I think we, our minds are focused on, you know, saving somebody's life or, you know, reducing that fracture or, you know, treating that infection. And um, unfortunately, getting that extra dose of pain medication um, might be difficult uh, in a busy emergency department setting. Um, and we did, um, we did do a retrospective cohort study on cancer pain management in our ERs uh, and found that there was a significant problem. Specifically, we looked at uh, time to first dose of analgesia for patients that actually came in with a chief complaint of pain related to their cancer uh, and found that it's actually really uh, enlightening that the median time to the first dose of pain medication was 93 minutes. Wow. And that was actually after they hit the bed. So not, not time to... Uh, you know, coming into the ER, waiting in the waiting room, and then getting in their room, it was actually, they were physically in their bed, and it still took them a median of 93 minutes to get their first dose. And we did a similar study with with a multi-site trial from the uh, Concern Network, which is the Comprehensive Oncologic Emergencies Research Network. And, and that trial found something very similar, about 77 minutes was the median time to, to analgesia. So this is a significant problem. And in addition to that, uh, from that concern uh, study that we did, we found that patients that came in with cancer-related pain that had high pain scores, somewhere between seven to 10, they had a much higher risk of 30-day uh, mortality than lower pain scores. Um, so it's something not only that is incredibly important to treat and that we're not doing that well. It's also indicative of, of their their outcome. So knowing that somebody with cancer is coming in with a high pain score definitely indicates that we should take that person's uh, you know chief complaint and their medical care a little bit more uh, seriously and maybe even uh, admit them if we're sort of on the fence. Chris, when I was... Uh chair of the ethics committee and we were doing consults, we were constantly amazed at patients who had known metastatic disease as the cause of their high pain scores, in whom the physicians were reluctant to give adequate analgesia because they didn't want to addict them. And we kept trying to explain that at that point of their disease, Addiction should not even be considered, number one. And the second problem we found was that physicians were and nurses were reluctant to administer increasingly higher doses of opiates because of the side effects of higher doses. And we kept trying again to explain that ethically it doesn't matter. When the goal is comfort and to relieve the pain, it doesn't matter if you also induce some of the side effects of the medication. You're not giving them for the side effects, you're giving them for the pain relief. And my, my last uh, question is, have you had any experience with using non-opiate relief in the emergency department, such as marijuana or some of the other uh, uh, currently recommended naturopathic pain relievers? So first off to your point, I completely, completely agree with you. Um, you know, definitely in this current era, uh, uh, we are much more reluctant as physicians to treat with high doses of pain medication. 
um, or even regular doses, but on uh, sort of frequent intervals. So definitely, we are reluctant to treat as physicians, and especially in the current climate, uh, with uh, the known opiate crisis in our country. Unfortunately, uh, Peter, what you what you experienced on the ethics committee is, if anything, getting worse now, because it's just such a uh, uh, such a not only uh, pervasive view that we don't want to treat with opiates for anyone, but it's also becoming such a uh, uh, there's also a huge media frenzy over not treating patients with with opiates. And unfortunately, uh, to your other point, we we definitely do not treat with morphine equivalent dosing in the emergency department. Um, I think most people, uh, most emergency physicians, go to a standard dose of morphine uh, or Dilaudid when they're treating a patient with opiates, such as like four to six milligrams of morphine or one milligram of Dilaudid IV where several of these patients will be on huge doses of oral uh, opiates, either morphine sulfate or oral dilaudid or fentanyl patches. So that little dose of four milligrams of morphine or six milligrams of morphine um, is, is so small, it's really not even getting close to adequately treating their pain. Um, and if you actually look at the weight-based dosing of morphine, it's 0.01 mg per kg. So in general, even on the average patient, we underdose people all the time with, with uh, these medications. And so having a structure in place where you are working with your ED pharmacist as well as an educational campaign with your nurses to let them know that if somebody comes in on high doses of oral opiates with cancer, uh, there's no reason at all to not treat them with the appropriate uh, morphine equivalent dose uh, IV when they come into the emergency department. Um, if the person's been on these medications chronically, you're not going to get those complications of you know apnea or hypotension because they've been on them. They're, they have been accustomed, their body is adjusted to those medications. And if anything, you're just prolonging their suffering by giving a lower dose. So as far as your, uh, your question, <clears throat> so one of the things we've, we've uh, instituted in our protocol here at UCSD is actually using um, subdissociative ketamine uh, that has definitely gained a lot of favor uh, here, not only for cancer, but actually for other uh, diseases as well. Uh, we actually have an ongoing study on using ketamine for migraines. And then also... Um, you mentioned marijuana, so we don't we don't have any uh, any protocol or treatment of marijuana in the emergency department here. Although it was recently legalized in California, however, I am seeing more patients come in with with those things prescribed by their physicians, um, either oral liquid or candies or even uh, you know vaporizing marijuana, um, and it definitely does seem anecdotally to be helping. We're currently doing a study here at UCSD on marijuana now that it's been legalized for the last few months. Um, so I'm curious to see what that looks like in our cancer population. But definitely, as you know, it has been shown to be effective, especially for um, chemotherapy-induced nausea, but also for some of the pain uh, related to cancer. Chris, could you describe some of the protocols that you have in place? You referenced, I think, parts of them, but if a patient with cancer uh, a patient with uh, metastatic cancer comes to the emergency department, they hit your door, and they're in pain. Uh, what's the process they go through? What are your protocols that you have set up? So we're still, uh, to be honest, we're still sort of 
working to finalize some of these protocols with the uh, ED pharmacist, also with the uh, palliative care pharmacist for our hospital, um, and with our oncologist. But in general, the protocol would be patient would come in. If it's an established UCSD patient, we should have their their medications in our electronic medical record system. And there is a uh, EMR-based conversion for recommended IV dosing of pain medication uh, in the event that the patient does require this. So you can imagine somebody being on fentanyl or, uh, or oral morphine sulfate. That would then convert their dosage into an IV form. So we, do, we are um, implementing these, or we have set up meetings to start implementing these things in our emergency, emergency department. Chris, anything else you'd like to add about uh, how emergency physicians should approach uh, cancer patients when they come into their ED? I think one thing I can say is that, you know, obviously not every type of cancer is the same. Certain types of cancers are known to, uh, to bounce back more frequently. We looked at... Uh, at which patients, which types of cancers would would return to the ER within seven days. And we, lo- we actually looked at uh, the OSHPOT database, which is a California-based database, uh, looking at every single uh, ER visit and hospital admission over the course of a year, and found that those patients with cancer that presented to the uh, emergency department, of those patients with cancer that presented to the emergency department, the most common types that would return would actually be uh, more of the GI cancers. So our number one was small bowel, which nearly one in five actually returned within seven days, uh, regardless of what their initial chief complaint was. That was followed by uh, stomach cancer, and pancreatic cancer was very high as well. One other thing we noted was that the most common reasons for bounce back for these patients was generally septicemia, uh, most commonly from pneumonia. And that was, uh, again, fairly significant amongst those those uh, types of cancers that, that actually receive the more aggressive therapies. So we mentioned earlier in the podcast uh, hematologic malignancies. And because, again, those types of cancers receive more aggressive care, uh, more aggressive chemotherapies, and have more depleted immune systems, those patients definitely came back more frequently with infections. Well, Chris, we really appreciate you uh, taking time to talk with us, and uh, I I think this kind of uh, information is definitely on the forefront. It's going to be hitting all of us across the country in the ED pretty hard as uh, these patients start to come in with some of these symptoms, and I think being aware of uh, the emergency conditions like we uh, are supposed to, uh, the emergent and uh, potentially life-threatening side effects from some of the medications, uh, how to deal with these febrile neutropenic patients, and especially how to appropriately treat some of these patients who are suffering, I think it's only going to be increasingly an issue that we have to face in the ED. So we appreciate you doing this stuff to try to make it a little bit easier on those of us that may be blanked out during uh, chemotherapy lectures in uh, <laughs> pathology class. Thanks, Chris. I think this is a great, uh, a great example of what I was hoping we could accomplish with these podcasts. Thank you very much for your input. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I had a great time uh, speaking with you today. Um, definitely pretty passionate about these patients and improving their care, and uh, I think we can do uh, a great job treating them in, in the ER um, with just a little bit of uh, modification of our current practice. 